Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Faith in Politics. This month we have a monthly musing by Simeon Mitchell, an interview with MP Michael Tomlinson, and in the news we'll be talking about Brexit and the recent UN report on poverty in the UK. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Faith in Politics. Back by popular demand, your hosts are Bethan and Will. There's really only one place to start this month and it's with Brexit. After almost two years of negotiations between Britain and the European Union, we finally have a deal that's going to come before Parliament on December the 11th. The meaningful vote will take place and MPs will decide whether or not they can support Theresa May's deal. There's been an awful lot of focus within Parliament on what Theresa May hasn't managed to achieve with this deal. But given that so much of the referendum vote was about reclaiming control, reclaiming sovereignty of our laws and our borders, Theresa May can claim credibly to have delivered on the vote of the British people. In contrast to what Theresa May has delivered on, there has been a lot of conversation and debate about the issues with the deal. Primarily that the deal, because it was negotiated outside of the Houses of Parliament, cannot be amended. So we either take it or leave it, and there's no capacity for MPs or the House of Lords to amend it in any way. A lot of people in Parliament felt this is really dangerous because we voted to leave the EU to regain power and to take it back from the EU, but at the same time, this deal ties us into something that we have no capacity to amend. Additionally, a lot of people have issue with the possibility that Brexit could create a fracturing of the Union in the UK, that being the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. If a hard border came about because of Brexit between the two countries, there is a fear that this would reignite the tension. However, if enough MPs did not support this deal and we ended up with a no-deal situation, the Bank of England has come up with some very worrying forecasts as for the state of the economy in the event of a no-deal. Will, what can you tell us about this? Well, the Bank of England has forecast that the economy could shrink uh, by as much as 9% um, by 2033. Um, I think it's worth taking Bank of England forecasts, not not exactly with a pinch of salt, but but recognising that they are forecasts rather than predictions about what is going to happen. There was concern uh, based on Bank of England forecasts that if we voted to leave, that there would be a recession almost straight away. And actually, we saw continued growth after the referendum. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see how the MPs do vote in response to these um, forecasts from the Bank of England. Because a lot of them may feel that they have to vote for this deal because of the possibility that it could create a recession. Also, on that note, I do think it is really interesting the way that people have responded to the divorce settlement that we will have to be paying. It's estimated that it will be £39 billion that we'll have to pay towards the EU um, to leave as part of what they're calling the divorce settlement. Um, Considering so much of the Leave campaign was based on the amount of money that we'd be saving in leaving the EU, I think a lot of people are finding it rather ironic that we are now landed with this rather colossal bill. And we're thinking about money that we're spending as a country and the UN report on poverty in the UK was released uh, in the middle of November and it was pretty damning, wasn't it, Bethan? Yes, it was a very significant report in regards to the state of poverty in the UK. The UN rapporteur spent 12 days touring around the country to try and investigate and understand the state of poverty in the UK. The UK is the fifth largest economy in the world, and yet the report found that over 14 million people are living in poverty and 1.4 million are living in destitution. The UN rapporteur Philip Alston released a preliminary report on his findings of the state of poverty, in particular the impact of austerity on the rate of poverty. I think the idea of poverty as a political choice, which is how it was described in the report, is both uh, extremely disappointing, it it doesn't reflect well on our society and the choices that have been made 
by our leaders. But but it also offers a sense of hope in some ways too, doesn't it? That if it was our choices that uh, led us to this situation where so many people are living in poverty, where so many people are sleeping rough, where so many people are relying on food banks, then it can also be our choices that can alleviate the problems that many people are facing. Uh, we had a team meeting recently where we looked at Luke chapter 4 and we read Jesus as the fulfilment of the scripture in Isaiah of setting free the oppressed, of giving sight to the blind. He's come with the poor in mind. As Will said, what was set out in the report was that the way poverty has increased in this country was as the result of a political choice. Yeah, and I think it's a really important thing to think about how we should create societies with the most vulnerable put at the centre and a focus put on supporting people who have fewer opportunities and helping them flourish. I think it's really interesting to look at how our society would change if we did put the most vulnerable at the centre and this is definitely something that this UN report demonstrated. There was a very damning quote in the report saying that the British government has been punitive, mean-spirited and often callous in its treatment of the country's poorest and most vulnerable. Now this is an incredibly political statement but the way that we treat the poor in this country is a political act and I think that although it is a really hard thing to read and really damning towards the state of the fifth largest economy's population it's also something that is really important and really necessary to hear in this time of Brexit when that's all that's in the news and that in fact we should be working towards policies that are pushing to make the most vulnerable be the most cared for. So talking of how our society treats the most vulnerable, we're now going to be moving on to our monthly musing. This musing is brought to you by Simeon Mitchell, who, who is one of our URC members of the JPIT team. And in this musing, he's going to be touching on the topic of waiting and what that means in our modern day society. How are you at waiting for things? At this time of year, my children start to get impatient for Christmas to arrive. How many days is it to go, Dad? they ask. And then as their excitement turns to frustration, the cry periodically goes up, I can't wait! For many of us, in this technology-powered age, where immediate delivery of goods and services is increasingly becoming the norm, waiting is a somewhat counter-cultural experience. We're used to instant gratification. Black Friday and Cyber Monday have been enthusiastically introduced to Britain by retailers, apparently because people just couldn't wait a few weeks for the post-Christmas sales, which only a few years ago didn't used to launch until January anyway. We tend to think that we shouldn't have to wait for what we want. So imagine having to put your whole life on hold while you wait for a decision about your future to be made. That's Salim's experience. He applied for asylum in Britain two years ago, and he's still waiting to hear the outcome. He says, the waiting is killing me. You can't work, you can't study. You're in limbo. By the end of last year, the number of people waiting for longer than the government target of six months for a decision on an asylum claim had risen to over 14,000. That's a 25% increase on the previous year. It's the highest annual number of people waiting since records began. Some of their stories have been gathered together in a report by the charity Refugee Action, one of the groups that the churches are working alongside as we seek a society that honours the biblical imperative to welcome the stranger. Those seeking asylum hope and expect that their arrival in the UK will mean an end to an often long and arduous journey to seek protection. 
but sometimes it marks the beginning of a series of damaging and dehumanising delays, during which the rest of life has to be put on hold. Olivia says, It's just like you're stuck in one place. You're just waiting, and you don't know anything. You don't know what you're waiting for. You don't know anything. You're in the dark. It's just torture. She was waiting for four years before her claim for asylum was granted. The experiences of Salim and Olivia are just one of the reasons why the recently launched Lift the Ban campaign to allow asylum seekers the right to work after six months is so important. The brokenness of the asylum system is one of the reasons why the policies of the hostile environment are particularly cruel, as they make waiting harder still. In the season of Advent, we are reminded that the experience of the people of God is an experience of waiting. Waiting for God, waiting for liberation, waiting for the Lord's promises to be fulfilled, waiting for salvation, waiting in darkness to be shown the way. At the time when Jesus was born, it was 400 years since the last book of scripture had been written, Four centuries since God had said or done anything worthy of recording. Four hundred years of silence, of waiting. The people of God had waited, waited through seventy years of Roman occupation, waited through decades of humiliation and oppression for their deliverer to come. The devout couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had waited, waited through their prime years to conceive a child, and waited to see what their strange child of God, John, would become. The young girl, Mary, had waited, waited for nine months while carrying a child of uncertain parentage, waited for the arduous journey to Bethlehem to end. The old man, Simeon, had waited, waited for a lifetime for the restoration of Israel, waited to delay his death until he saw the Messiah. The experience of the people of God is an experience of waiting. Waiting actively and waiting hopefully. So in the waiting time of Advent, let's recognise that we're in good company. Let's listen to the experiences of those who have no option but to wait, and the voices of those who too long for liberation and for good news. Let us rediscover our impatience, not for the latest product or the tempting bargain, but for change, and recommit ourselves to working for God's kingdom on earth. For the days are surely coming, says the Lord in Jeremiah 33, when I will fulfil the good promises I made to the people. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up, bringing justice and righteousness to all the land. We wait in hope. Up next we're going back to Brexit with an interview with Michael Tomlinson, the Conservative MP for Mid Dorset and North Pool. Uh, for full disclosure I work in Michael's office and we had a good conversation about his views on the deal and how he approaches uh, politics as a man of faith. Also we had this conversation before the Bank of England and the Treasury released their forecasts about the impact of no deal.
Michael, having campaigned to leave the European Union and, and now that the meaningful vote in Parliament is very close, I wondered if you could talk about what your principal objections are to the deal that Theresa May has brought back from Brussels. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to do so. But uh, I think I'd start by saying it's a really unhappy place to be and an uncomfortable place to be. That This is a Conservative Prime Minister who's brought back a deal. Um, and I think she's doing the right thing. She feels duty-bound to put this uh, deal before Parliament, and, that, and that's absolutely right. Um, but, I, but I have two main objections, I suppose. When I, when I look through the detail, and yes, I have looked through every single um, one of the 585 pages of the document. You know, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, and that was my first instinct. What should you do? You should stop. You should have a look at the document and consider what, what it says. But I've looked in detail at two of the areas in particular. One is the area that affects uh, Northern Ireland. So I, does it maintain Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom? That is of, of prim primary importance to me. Um, and secondly, looking at the backstop as well. I think that those are the key elements, and not just the backstop, but how do we? Do we, do we gain control or do we relinquish control as, as, a, as a result of this um, document um, or treaty as it will be? Um, and my conclusion on, on the backstop is that actually we're, we're giving up control, we're, we're relinquishing um, and losing control r rather than gaining it. The, I think the Prime Minister's been very straightforward about this. She was asked a question in, in the House of Commons and she has said yes, that, you know, that, that is the effect of it. Um, but um, she says it's unlikely that we'll actually get to the backstop. Um, but my concern is what if we do end up there? Um, and what if we do end up even extending the, the implementation period? I, I mean, it, it will have been years since the vote, and, the, and that's, that's one of, one of you know, th those are my two main primary concerns. Mm. You've spoken, I know, about the opportunities that Britain has after we've left the European Union to, to do things differently as a country. Do you think that um, as the deal as it stands, that, that we do not regain our sovereignty sufficiently to make the most of those opportunities? I, I think that's a really neat way of putting it. And, and sovereignty was always the, the key issue for, for, for me. I'm, I hope I'm not an obsessive about Brexit. Um, in, in fact, I would describe myself as an unbalanced Brexiteer, someone who, who looked at the issue. But it was really sovereignty. It should be, call me selfish, but it should be members of parliament in, in here. Um, that that make our our rules and our laws not 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 in Brussels. I mean, don't get me wrong. Where where any other country, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in America, whether it's Canada, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, wherever it is across the world, if there's an idea that's a good one, we should look at it. But then it should be our Parliament that debates it. It should be our Parliament that is, that says yay or nay or or yes. But this is how to tweak it so that it fits in in with our laws. So absolutely, parliamentary sovereignty has been key. I suppose in one way, um, parliamentary sovereignty is being um, exercised during the course of the meaningful vote. And, and what are we now? We're almost two weeks away from that. Um, and there will be a debate. There will be a lengthy debate um, over the course of five days, I think it is. And, and then a series, or what I anticipate, will be a series of votes um, running up to a straightforward um, yes or no to the meaningful vote. Mm. You talked about being a balanced Brexiteer. Do you mm. think that the moderate voices have been squeezed out of the Brexit debate, not just since the referendum, but during the referendum too, that we've heard the loud voices rather than the moderate voices on this issue? I, I think that's a real risk in, in all of our politics and, and wh whichever way you look or whichever subject you're, you're looking at, 
um, or debating, it is inevitable, I think, that it will be those that shout loudest that, that will be heard. Um, but that's why it's incumbent on probably pretty much every single Member of Parliament during the course of the five days of the debate to at least have something that's put on the record um, so that their voices are heard. So it's massively important that everyone, um, that it's not just in inverted commas the extremists mm. um, on both ends of, of the argument, but actually all shades of opinion leave, remain, and, and every every shade in between is heard. That That's vitally important. Mm. And you're talking about a clean globe Brexit. Is that in some ways a way of reclaiming the language from people who are warning about the dire consequences of no deal? Oh, ab- absolutely. Now, now listen, I'm, I'm hugely proud of the phrase clean global Brexit and I, it needs to be trademarked <laughs> and it was Michael Tomlinson that said it and you heard it first here. Um, but absolutely right. And what's a clean global Brexit? What does that mean? It means it's a clean break. I, it, it is a straightforward break from Europe. Um, it's global because we would be trading on uh, WTO terms um, and it really is Brexit, a clean global Brexit. But that's not what I'm aiming for and that's not my, that hasn't been my primary target. My aim has been for a straightforward free trade agreement, a straightforward FTA, a super Canada type deal. Um, and that I think is something that, that still is within reach. Um, I accept it's less likely now given the passage of time, that the clock's ticking down. The 29th of December uh, will soon be upon us. So it's go- I, I'm realistic that that would be difficult to secure now. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Of course we should try. We should go out there and say, this is this is our offer. This is our final offer. This is something um, that, that I think we should be going for. But if we don't get it now, then we will leave. We'll have the clean global Brexit. And in time, I'm sure there will be an FTA, there will be a free trade agreement between us and the European Union because it is in their interests as much as it's in ours. And when when businesses, when companies say, hang on, this is something that we need, um, that's when the, the, the deal will, will happen. And I've been, I've, I've been surprised, frankly, um, that BMW, that Mercedes, that French winemakers, etc., haven't been banging on the door of their politicians saying we need a deal. Um, but in time, that is something that will come. You talked about reclaiming the language. I think it's been far too negative. And no deal sounds negative. And all this disaster Armageddon scenarios that have been played out of, of a cliff edge, etc. People said that nobody voted to become poorer. Uh, and that, that, I suppose, is right to a certain extent. But people were warned of dire consequences if they voted to leave. And yet they voted to leave in their millions and leave one. And therefore, I think we should uh, be very uh, cautious about having another round of Project Fear, as it's been dubbed, um, because I think that's very dangerous for for trust in politicians and certainly trust in economic forecasts. Do you think that being a Christian gives you a sense of certainty about the future, whether that's in your own life or in political life, that maybe there's there's not so much of that in the debate around Brexit and that there there are these dire warnings about what might happen? How does being a Christian influence the way that you view these issues? I'm not sure if it gives uh, me any more certainty than anyone else. I'm not sure that's right. Um, I I suppose what I'm looking for is is an inner peace. Perhaps I gain a little bit of an inner peace from from being a Christian that someone who's not a Christian might might not have. But that doesn't mean that I have any more or any less certainty than anyone else. 
Um, I mean, it's, there, there are many things that you can talk about about being a, being a Christian in politics, but, uh, but I suppose a lot of it is, is in trust. I am a Christian, therefore I believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came down to, to, save, to save us sinners um, and that we are redeemed and that there is potential for all of us to be redeemed. I suppose that's right, but that doesn't necessarily give me any more, more or less moral authority, any more or less certainty um, on this subject. It's just a fact. It's a fact of who I am. It is part of who I am. It is inextricably linked. Um, I hated it um, when Tony Blair was told, he didn't say it, when he was told by his press advisor that no, Tony Blair doesn't do God, um, God and politics don't mix. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I think we need people of, um, I think Christians need to step up and serve um, and to stop shouting from the sidelines, frankly, as, as, as many people do. I think uh, Christians, if they want to, you know, and of course we should all want the best for our country, absolutely right, um, but but those who, who have a particular passion need, need to step up and serve, and, and that's what I've done. And, and how, how in, in very specific ways, does your faith drive you to take on the issues that you do in Parliament? Well, it's, it's, as I say, it's massively important because it's just simply part of, part of who I am. You know, I, I try and study and read the Bible regularly. I'd like to read the Bible more, um, but, but I try and do that regularly. And, and of course, that, that helps give me a perspective and, and it helps um, with, with some of the issues that, that I'm trying to champion. Um, what, what are my main aims that, that I'm looking at? I suppose um, education, employment and justice. And in all of those, what I try and do is look at the most vulnerable in society. And, and I think that is just part of who I am, just as much as being a Christian is, is part of what I do um, every day in this place. And finally, Michael, we've recently mm. launched a, a campaign in the Joint Public Issues team called Meet Your MP. And we're encouraging our, our church members to write to their MPs and encourage them to um, get to know their MP. How, how would you recommend our church members engage with their MPs? What are the kind of things? This, that... Now, listen. This, this is massively important. It's hugely important. There's, it's no good when it just r- running up in the run up to a crunch vote, writing to your MP saying it is ridiculous that you're going to vote this way or that way, or even worse, after the event saying why on earth, Michael, did you vote for this and that? You're absolutely right. It's massively important. Um, that Christians engage with their MPs, that they go and meet them. I know some have said that they're nervous or reluctant. Absolute nonsense. Um, MPs are just human beings, and each and every one of them holds surgeries. If they don't, you need to publicise that fact and tell them they should. But every single MP that I know um, is accessible, whether by letter, by email, meeting in person, and build up that relationship and that trust. And even if you're on different sides of the argument, absolutely go and meet your MP. Um, and, and have that sensible and constructive dialogue, um, which, which sadly is lacking in, in many cases. And if you have that, then you have that constructive, positive dialogue. Say where the MP's going right. <laughs> that's, that's a good place to start. Um, and then in, in time, there'll be built up mutual trust, hopefully, between the two. And you can have that constructive dialogue. Well, why, how about thinking about it this way? Um, and, and that's absolutely what I'd encourage uh, everyone to do. And finally, we're going to have a book recommendation. Bethan, what have you been busy reading for the last few weeks? So this month, I've been reading a couple of books all about what it's like to be in different professions. The first of this being the book This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay. It's an absolutely fantastic book all about the experience of Adam Kay when he was a junior doctor in the NHS. So if you want a really interesting and funny approach to understanding the life of doctors, I highly recommend it. 
I've also been reading a book called The Life of the Secret Barrister, which is a similar kind of book in which the author is talking about his experience of working in criminal law. So if you want to learn more about what it's like to be a barrister, which is a rather mysterious profession, I highly recommend it. Again, it doesn't hurt that it's incredibly funny. Thank you very much for those, Bethan. That is all we have time for. It's been a busy uh, podcast and a busy month of news in Westminster. We hope you've enjoyed listening uh, and we're looking forward to the next podcast of Faith in Politics. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.